0: Oh, and welcome to another episode of Joey Hates Movies. We're here today to talk about a very special and oddly contemporary movie, and it's just one that I think is a, a nice litmus test. It's a litmus test of Joey's taste in movies. Oh, and that sounds intimidating. <laughs> I didn't know this was going to be like... A no, place. yeah, this is a this is a very specific experiment. We are, of course, talking about Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is, I think, a particularly interesting Joey Hates Movies experiment because before we began this podcast, the only movies Joey had really seen were every single one of Quentin Tarantino's movies. I like (laughs) blood. You like feet. Yeah, you like feet, you like blood, and you like people dropping racial slurs. (laughs) Please, we got (laughs) to cut that out. What? No! That's what Quentin Tarantino does! That's like a thing that you blindly will go into as we were like, yeah, there's, there's someone's going to drop a, a slur at some point. I'm sorry that I like those movies. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to keep on being bullied about them. There's nothing wrong with Lion, Quentin Tarantino. There's a reason why he's so popular. So like he, Regardless of what you think. Do you think I want to be that basic?
1: With I- the, the amount of everything else you know about me, do you think I revel in the fact about being basic about that one thing? Because there's many that d- – d- 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 I feel like that's out of –
0: Touch with the rest of my character. Have you considered that you might have the taste of a freshman undergrad in film <laughs> school?
1: Well, I do also love White Claws.
0: <laughs> but regardless, we're here to talk Tarantino, baby. Oh, I, I'm Nick Lamone, and I also really like Quentin Tarantino. I like most Tarantino, I should say. But uh, I'm, Coral,
2: I'm Coral, and I historically do not like Quentin Tarantino very much. <laughs>
0: but like any Tarantino is there one Pulp Tarantino?
2: Fiction's fun Kill Bill took forever so I didn't watch the sequel that's kind of my, my pacing
0: okay
2: I should watch Jackie Brown because I think that's the other one I would actually like but
1: Jackie yeah. Brown is um, my second favorite Tarantino movie mm. behind Kill Bill Mm. Which I realized doesn't do a good job for your no, personal face.
2: No, I get to
1: watch Jackie Brown. A lot of people well. say that they haven't liked or haven't watched, or they don't like Jackie Brown.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think Jackie Brown is a lot of fun. Jackie Brown is what made me like. After I watched Jackie Brown, that's mm-hmm. when I watched all the other Tarantino movies. Oh,
2: that was your your like introduction? Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting.
0: But, Joey, you hate movies, but you love Tarantino. A man who historically loves movies. There was, there was a,
1: there was probably a six-year period of my life where um, the only movies I saw in theater were Tarantino movies. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. That's crazy. Like I saw Django, then I didn't see any movie until Hateful Eight in theaters, <laughs> and then after Hateful Eight. I didn't see any movies until, <laughs> for work, we went to go see Ready Player One together as a crew.
2: What a movie to <laughs> break that streak.
1: <laughs> but there was a period of time where for years,
0: four years, if not more, I saw three movies up until that Ready Player One. Hmm. How many times did you ask your friends, like, what they call a, a Big Mac in France? Stop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, a. Uh, it's, it's, uh, man, it's, it's something that I, I was, I was excited for one spot Time in Hollywood to come out because I get excited for all the Tarantino movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, we can go watch it together. We've never been to a movie before, even though you guys probably legitimately see more than 20 movies a year apiece. Yeah,
2: yeah. I um, think I'm at 35. Uh, I
0: got to count. But yeah, that sounds about right. How do you know that?
2: I ha- keep a list of all the movies I watch and I star the ones that came out this year. Oh, that's, oh,
1: that's fine. I started doing that this year with movies, games, and TV shows. I've always done them with TV, mm. but now I'm keeping track of all of them. And then, like, I'm rating them against each other, too.
2: Yeah, I should just get a letterbox. I haven't done that yet. I just have a list in my notebook.
0: Is that the website where people just write, like, tiny reviews? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I should do that, too. That sounds fun. Yeah. But we
1: can—this is not going to be a tiny review. This is, this is a full-blown episode <laughs> on a thing that we all have very different, complicated feelings about, I think. Yeah. Yeah. This is a long ass movie. It was a long <laughs> movie. We saw it together at the dome. Um it was it was a good I've never been there before.
0: It was nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that was fun. It, it felt it, historic. It felt really Los Angeles. It felt like the way like if Tarantino was like, if they could watch one movie, if they, if they could watch my movie in one theater in the entire town, this this is the one. This this is the one that they should watch the movie. Well the movie dome's in. also in the movie. Yeah.
1: And then it when it's weird it showed... because people cheered people yeah.
2: cheered <laughs> That's me!
0: (laughs) But uh, it wouldn't have been them because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Hollywood, takes place in the 60s? It takes place in the 60s and retells the events of um, not only the... Hold on, it doesn't retell those really at all. So let me take that back one more time. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood tells the story of uh, former Hollywood star Rick Dalton, who is the star of a Western serialized drama called *Bounty Law*, who's kind of his career's kind of run its course at this point. He's getting older, and a lot of people just don't really care so much about TV westerns anymore. He's he's an old fossil in an ever-evolving industry, and he's kind of saddled up with Brad Pitt. His uh, his uh, stunt double. What's what's his what's his buddy? Cliff, Cliff Booth. Booth. Cliff Booth. And and together they're kind of like this weird dynamic duo where Rick Dalton is clearly paying Cliff Booth to just hang around and be his personal driver, and Cliff Booth's kind of the guy who's just totally comfortable doing that, and he doesn't really aspire to do anything. Whereas Rick Dalton, you could tell he's a man whose pride is just down in the dumps. And so he's looking for his next big opportunity. And uh, at the same time, we have a parallel storyline of Sharon Tate, who in our timeline, in the real world timeline, was uh, infamously and gruesomely murdered by the Charles Manson family. And uh, it's kind of been this really big infamous case in Hollywood. It's a thing that like anyone who knows anything about Hollywood like is at least vaguely familiar with and this movie has a different take on that same story and those two those those two stories kind of parallel each other and and they live right next to each other in hollywood And, and so that's kind of really i think a broad strokes overview is an old star's waning fame and a new star's rising fame in hollywood uh but let's let's change things up a little bit coral How did you feel about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood?
2: It genuinely hurts my heart to say this is my favorite movie of the year so far.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Really? Yeah. I am uh, genuinely surprised that it's your favorite movie so far.
2: Yeah. I I was unsure about it right after I saw it. And then, like, for a week after, I just, like, wanted to read what everyone else had to say about it. And I can't think of another movie I've seen so far where I was, like, just... Craving criticism about a movie.
1: What, what so. spurred the criticism is it because you didn't feel like steadfast in your own No,
2: no, I just, it, I just felt like there's, there's a lot of layers and a lot of different ways to view this movie, and I was, I just, w- just wanted to hear people talking about it.
0: Yeah, I, I found myself in a very similar situation after I, after I watched it the second time because it was mm-hmm. definitely when I left the theater the first time I was like, I know what I immediately think about it. I thought that the movie was. Uh, super self-indulgent in a way that only Tarantino can be indulgent but it was also fun like I don't feel like my time was wasted but I definitely felt like I needed to digest a -hmm. bit longer and then watch it a second time to really cement how I felt about it and I think once I watched it a second time I realized that it is a bad story but a good movie (laughs) like it's I think the quintessential I don't know what to watch, but I feel like watching something. I'm going to throw this on while I like, get dinner ready, or if we have a party, I'm going to throw this on in the background, and everyone's going to be grabbing drinks, and everyone will randomly tune into this movie at a point, and whenever they watch this movie, they'll probably have a good time for the 40 seconds that they watch it. Hmm. And like I feel like there's a lot of good, strong moments that are all kind of unrelated to each other, and just nothing's really meaningfully tied together, I feel like, which is weird because Mm -hmm. it is both self-indulgent for Tarantino and in some ways the most Tarantino movie because it's all about Hollywood and just, hey, this is how I remember Hollywood. Like, isn't this cool? But it also feels so unlike Tarantino because I feel like there's a lot of restraint. Like, none of the dialogue feels particularly Tarantino. It's not as snappy. As some of his other movies, it's not overtly gory like *Inglorious Bastards* or even *Pulp Fiction*. Like you could tell, it's the same guy, but like maybe he's matured to some extent.
2: It, it- definitely felt introspective in a way I've never felt Tarantino to be. I mean, he he feels like the kind of person where if you have criticism or anything towards him he will just double down on whatever he thinks people don't like about his movies and this felt like the first time he didn't take a step away from those criticisms necessarily but but used them in a new way that felt like it was responsive to that criticism um just especially the most obvious example with like regards to violence i feel like this movie really took a strong stance on fictional violence and the depiction of violence and how that can be useful how that can be harmless i felt like that was very much an introspective take on his own use of violence in other movies
0: Mm. Uh, joey what about you like you like tarantino quite a bit so where would you place this and how did you feel about it
1: i think um this made me realize that i may not like tarantino for like his art per se but i like the i like the Absurdity and grotesqueness of a lot of the stuff he's done because, um, I don't know. I disclaim, I don't like kill kittens. I don't think I'm like a serial killer. I'm not like obsessed with like gore and stuff like that. But I've always felt like when in his other movies, there was, um, because some of the violence was taken to like 11 and it was surrealistic almost hyper real, not, not hyper realistic, but just like too far. Um, it was absurd. Yeah, and, and being absurd um, made it funny, mm-hmm. uh, so to, to to strip that back and to have a long movie where the point that I was really craving and interested in and wanted to like see, almost like it was pornographic, was at the very end, for a little bit of time, was like, okay, I'm really excited I got what I wanted out of that, like that was cool, that was funny, I enjoyed the way this was made. But then looking back on the first half, I'm like, where's the plot?
0: Yeah. Where is it? I, I'd like, argue that the first half of this movie doesn't matter to some extent. Like, the second half is really where things actually happen.
2: But I, I feel like so much of this movie is about the looming threat of that final scene. Yeah. And you're not going to get that without a long first act that doesn't include violence. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so much of this movie is about expecting expecting something that you know if you know anything about the Tate murders is going to be horrific and it's going to be uniquely loaded because this was a real person who was really violently murdered and I feel like this is that's the driving force and you Mm -hmm. need that Mm. runway for that to work
1: yeah it's like there's a lot of there's a lot of not edging because we don't get close to violence so I guess like we do have like glimpses of it mm-hmm. but it's it's you're building up to this this crazy moment at the end
2: yeah
0: oh. I feel like unlike any other movie I've ever seen the knowledge of a horrific crime that laid ahead definitely like warped my perception of a lot of the interactions that were immediately associated with that I'm thinking specifically of the moment where Cliff finally gives the, uh, the hippie girl um, a, a ride to the ranch where he used to shoot films, and and that entire that entire scene just feels like a Hitchcock movie in the way it's paced. It's it, it just it turns this weird uh, slice of life of Hollywood sixties like idealism into just a weird like suspense thriller. Mm. When there's really though, like when you look at the scene, there's really no threat. There was, like, the promise of an eventual threat, maybe, but really, like, there was no way that something would have happened. Yeah. Like, like, in, in retrospect, like, Cliff isn't a victim. Like, I don't think he's ever been a victim his entire life. And this movie is just another one of those circumstances where he just would retell this at a later moment of his life and be like, yeah, that was crazy, man. I did some crazy shit. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think is kind of cool because I think out of everyone in the movie, I think Cliff was my favorite person in this movie outside of Sharon Tate. Because I, the thing that I really like about Sharon Tate, especially when she's like diametrically opposed to uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton, is that she's just so like, uh, for lack of a better word, Twitter pure. <laughs> she just is like, this is a person who has strived so hard to be somebody in Hollywood, and now that she finally is, she doesn't turn into an asshole. She relishes like the opportunity to have been a part of something that's bigger than her, and that's I you're like talk about her feet. And well, yeah, she shows her feet a lot, but it's just one of those things where it's just like she just genuinely is stoked to be in Hollywood and actively working in Hollywood. Like, I really don't know what Sharon Tate was like in real life, but Margot Robbie's portrayal of her just made her seem like the nicest, most, like, wholesome person who's just, like, cool. She's like, oh, you're just a cool person.
2: She's someone who really loves her life and really appreciates every part of it.
0: And, and everyone who helps make that a thing. Mm-hmm. Like like, she's just stoked to be in a theater. Like, I think my favorite scene outside of, like, the Cliff stuff is just her watching herself in the movie theater. And she's laughing at the joke. She's remembering all the blocking she did for her action scene. Like, mm-hmm. that's— You're Seeing everyone else react, which is fun. Yeah, it's that thing where you, 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 you show a movie you love to somebody and you watch their reaction because you remember how that movie made you feel. This is—I I couldn't imagine making a movie and then, like— seeing everyone's reactions laughing when they're supposed to and whatnot like that's on another level and she's just so stoked to be a part of it which is cool
2: yeah i think that parallels nicely with the scene of rick and cliff watching that episode of fbi together just like on the couch on the tv and how that's that's equally that i think might have been my favorite oh it's equally pure yeah but it's 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 clearly the other side of it where they're not just like so excited that there's this tv episode that we're in we're on the tv it's more of just like i don't know that's it's the way i feel like a lot of people who live in LA watch TV of like, oh, is that is that Malibu? Are they on the 405 right now? And like, <laughs> oh, it's crazy how they did this shot. They actually had to do with this. Like that, I've never really seen a movie that reflected how so many people watch movies that way
0: i, okay, I think sure. my, my favorite commentary is just like it felt like a weird commentary of people's commentary yeah movies like youtube <laughs> criticism to some extent where, where like there's a shot like where the glass is splintered and you see uh rick dalton through the, the splintered glass and you cliff is just like off screen you hear him oh that's a pretty good shot yeah. I like, <laughs> like i was like that's so, <laughs> so unnecessary but i like that like that's just a <laughs> he's just Two guys being dudes drinking (laughs) beer watching one of their episodes. Like, it was so wholesome. (laughs) And and I do think that this doesn't feel like a weird, like, masturbatory look at Hollywood and just movies that you would expect from Tarantino. This really just feels like almost like a subjective portrayal to some extent of just the media uh, Mm -hmm. or all the, the entertainment at the time. Definitely through a rose-tinted lens, but there's just something about it that just feels like, no, this is just how it was. He just lifts it up for you to see, and I'm going to make it look pretty if I can, but there's nothing truly special about it, yeah. which is cool. Like it's the scene of Cliff Booth driving through Hollywood Hills set to like rock and music, him driving on the 405, him driving on the 101, and then him taking the off-ramp on Van Nuys and uh, pulling into a behind – a drive-in movie theater so it's like glamour 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 and then just reality
2: which yeah is nice and the the simple it's so perfect that cliff booth lives behind the scenes he literally <laughs> lives behind a movie screen and he, he just doesn't strike be me
1: honest you just had to explain that to me i really just had a weird epiphany <laughs> yeah, so.
0: it, but he doesn't strike me as a dude who's ungrateful or he doesn't seem bitter at the world about it he's just a kind of dude who's just like that. That's just how the way it is, man. Yeah,
1: he's like painfully content. Like I don't think I can put up with someone in my life who's like that content with everything.
0: Hmm. Which makes, which, <laughs> which makes the scene where we're really introduced to him so weird to me. Because you learn what happened, what the controversy is surrounding Cliff. Because Rick brings him along for one of his shoes. He got cast to play a, a villain in an upcoming episode of another Western where he is not the star. He's just the villain. And so Cliff dra- – I'm sorry. Rick drags Cliff along in case that the production is looking for another stuntman. And so basically you see like – I again, I'm not a – big part of any hollywood productions or anything like that but like i've been there where people are like hey can you use this guy like he knows his shit man like he'd be good he'd be good and it's just like oh i don't know like he's kind of weird uh my wife doesn't like him and that's that's a conversation that's happening behind cliff's back like he knows it's happening but it's just like oh i i don't know okay we'll give him a shot it, well why why, do you feel, why does your wife feel that way well he killed his wife man <laughs> and then it's a smash cut to him on a boat his wife and him are bickering well she's doing all the bickering and you see the moment you don't see him kill her but you see her being terrible to him he's just kind of apathetic to the whole thing and he has a harpoon gun in his lap and it's implied that he shoots her with the harpoon gun uh, right before the camera cuts away
2: is it? Do you think it's implied, or do you think it is intentionally left open-ended for the viewer? I felt like it was implied, but I read a lot of a lot of the popular belief. I think is that we are intentionally not told how that happened.
0: I think that entire sequence is all just a weird, elaborate misdirect from mm-hmm. Tarantino, because that's also the same sequence where we have the the big controversial fight. Between him and uh, Bruce Lee. Um, And so I think that entire sequence is just an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. But I think the reason why it feels implied is because Kurt Russell's character is the one telling the story. So I feel like it's an unreliable narrator leading you to connect the dots. When maybe there really just aren't any dots to connect. Yeah. But that said... We see later in the movie that Cliff is capable of some pretty extreme violence. Yeah. So I I don't know. But the Cliff – like that would be one of those moments where if if Quentin Tarantino like came out tomorrow and was just like, nah, Cliff actually shot his wife with the harpoon gun. I would be really disappointed because Mm -hmm. that just doesn't seem like the guy that we got in the movie.
2: Hmm. (laughs) I think there's also some weird meta casting in this movie that I – think of because the actress that plays his wife in that movie is an actress who's been convicted of accidental manslaughter. The actual actress.
0: Oh my god! And there's
2: also, she's she talks about her sister or her friend in that scene, Natalie, and Natalie Wood is famously maybe murdered on a boat yeah. <laughs> as an actress. And there's also a lot with the Manson girls and just kind of general side characters in general where... You know, you have this Manson family circling the edges of Los Angeles in this movie, closing in on this aging actor who's losing his career. And a lot of those kids are played by the children of famous actors. You have Margaret Qualley, who's Andy McDowell's daughter. You have Lena Dunham, who's her whole family's been in showbiz. You have uh, Rumor Willis, who's Bruce Willis's daughter. Like, so many of these side characters are filled in with the young Hollywood children of yesteryears. Icons. Which I feel like that was – that had to be intentional because why would you bother casting people like Rumor Willis in your movie if not to make a statement?
0: Yeah, like not knowing that until now, that just seems like a thing that Tarantino would do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> which is like, like... –
0: hey, Bruce, you want your daughter in my movie? Yeah. And also like uh, Ethan Hawke's daughter. Who, right, yeah. Uh, who was in this latest season of Stranger Things. It's mm-hmm. like, OK, sure. She's in the movie for like three minutes total but – Wow, yeah, yeah. No, you're totally right. That's definitely a meta commentary. So yeah, maybe this, maybe everyone is just an elaborate pawn in Tarantino's movie about like making a statement of Hollywood, Mm. huh? Uh, But I, I, since we're already talking about that specific sequence, so like the reason why I'm talking, I'm gonna, I'm about to dive into the Bruce Lee controversy because that's been like one of the most uh, film Twitter controversial. I think, scenes about this movie where basically Cliff Booth gets into a, a disagreement with the the film's version of Bruce Lee and they get into a fight on set and it's just like a friendly competition that's clearly loaded by pride and just also maybe some weird like race things in an, er- in an era of Hollywood where people, actors of color weren't particularly treated well. So there's a lot, riding on the scene that's it's it's loaded you have a a white dude and an asian dude fighting each other like that's in the 1960s hollywood like that's pretty loaded but the thing that really paints that scene and really makes it seem like harmless to me at least personally is that the entire scene is just a loser cliff booth who is a loser like i think By any stretch of the imagination, like he's a cool guy. He's a dude I would like to be my friend, but he's a loser because he has no, he has no goals. He's perfectly comfortable being someone's driver to some extent. Like he's just he doesn't really have anything going on for him, and he's daydreaming on a roof of like, man, wouldn't it have been cool if I beat up Bruce Lee? Mm. And really, that's I think the extent of it. Like. Nothing seems more pathetic to me than someone wishing they could beat up someone. Like, oh man, if only Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. It's very much like someone looking back on their varsity days years later from from high school. Just like reminiscing and relishing in in a moment that never was. So that's why I think that that scene was totally fine.
2: I think it's fine in context. I think there's still... Validity to finding having to watch that yeah. cringy and that being the only representation of him. Yeah, I also I don't even know if this is relevant or how to parse it if it is. But uh, Bruce Lee was briefly the a suspect in Sharon Tate's murder, and, oh, really? and a friend of the family and taught her self defense moves and taught her some of the choreography for I think that movie she watched in the movie. So he's he's got his own like. Different weird little ties to the same night in question. Uh. That's
0: crazy. So I'm a very, I'm very much of like, I'm vaguely familiar with the Sharon. Like I knew she was killed mm-hmm. by the Manson family. And I knew that she was involved with Roman Polanski. And for, for some reason, I just assumed that Roman Polanski like was also a part of the the murder. Like there's just a lot of weird things about this entire like it feels like a weird cult. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like outside of the Manson stuff. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. Like yes. everything surrounding it just seems so weird. And that's the stuff that I was familiar with. But the more you describe about like the meta commentary of this movie, the more I'm like, I gotta watch this a third time to really <laughs> reevaluate all of the characters. Cause it really feels like a now that you're saying it, it feels like a like a theater production on top of a movie. Like, it just feels weird.
1: It seems like there's a lot of stuff that either I missed or, like, I need to watch it with a historian to, like, say all these things that aren't explicitly said in the movie. Mm-hmm. But why they could be interesting. Like, I had no idea that Bruce Lee was even remotely, you know, there or knew Shannon Tate. Yeah. So then to, I feel like that, that brings that whole, that character in that world to a whole different level.
2: Yeah.
0: But as someone who, like... You weren't very familiar with the Sharon Tate murders, right, Joey? I'm familiar with the Manson family, and I'm familiar with the Manson murders,
1: and I'm familiar with Sharon Tate dying. Um, but that's only because I grew up
0: in the same town
1: as the Manson caves.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> so how, how did that color your perception, like being vaguely familiar with it? But for the most part, I think, I think you're in a similar boat as me where you're largely ignorant to a lot of the things that might have been uh, a part of the movie. Like did that – do you think that you – got less from the movie as a result.
1: Potentially. I don't know how much was crammed in there that, like, I would never know without having so much more of a history lesson, right? Mm. So I'm sure there are things that, that I just couldn't appreciate but are really cool because Tarantino knows and cares more about this than I do. Yeah. But, like... Then that goes into a whole different, you know, philosophical conversation of what makes something good. Like, could that, could something like that still be good if you don't get all of the, the references and the nitty gritty that are being made?
2: Yeah. I think a lot of it is stuff that if you know the broad strokes, you can tell what they're, like a slow pan up to this Yellow Drive sign. I feel like you don't have to know that that's where the murders take place, but you can understand what we're setting up. And even the, the very, um, kind of bland narration about Sharon Tate and her friends going to El Coyote and that it was like her last night. I don't know if Evian explicitly says that, but that is, that is a known fact or at least myth that her last meal was at El Coyote. So that's one of those things where like if you know that then that adds a little bit more of the layer but if you just know that she gets murdered you can follow the, the pacing of that movie and you can tell that this is probably her last meal. Yeah. So I think it's a lot of things like that where like sure you can you can get a little more, you can be introduced to Tex in the car outside the house and know that Tex was the shitbag who did a lot of the the really violent parts of that murder but you can also just kind of figure that out watching it.
0: Yeah, I think Tarantino does a good job of presenting it for people who might not be aware. Like you said, the Cielo Drive, like I didn't know that she was killed on Cielo Drive. But the way that the camera kind of reveals Cielo Drive, it it, basically the camera saying a horrible thing took place. Yeah,
2: it gives it. It tells you things are important and you can put the rest together.
0: And and it's stuff like that. That's like, oh, this is a, a cool kind of restraint almost like it's a camera move like that's. Like pretty standard filmmaking, like, you know, this is how you reveal information. But it was done in a way that it was just like I'm surprised that Tarantino does stuff like that still, Mm -hmm. even when he does stuff that's simple because it's like, oh, you do still just like stick to the basics a lot of time. You just like to present things a little bit differently. Yeah. Uh, And and I think you see a lot of that basic – I think more so than any other film you see is just unabashed love for movies in this one and just obscure TV shows in Los that, Angeles. Los mm-hmm. Angeles, weird TV shows that none of us have ever seen. Like no. I don't think I've ever watched an episode of FBI. No. Or or just name the Western TV series that is probably just one of many in a bucket of T V westerns. Yeah. Like Bounty Law. You you might not have ever watched an episode of Bounty Law or whatever movie or whatever series he's in where he's playing a villain, Rick Dalton with uh, Timothy Olfant. But just like Tarantino got to shoot a 1960s Western TV show in the middle of his
1: giant movie, in the
0: middle of his movie, which was cool. It was engaging and it has those fourth wall breaking moments or like weird third wall breaking moments, I guess, because it's just breaking character in the movie, but not addressing our audience. Like you just line line. You see an actor's process in a way that doesn't seem inauthentic, like. I could have, I'm not an actor, but I imagine that's just what happens when you're acting and you forget your line. You know, you take it back a few. You kind of lose a little bit of the edge that you brought coming into it, but then you kind of find a way to make up for it later. Like, yeah, it's very much a movie about watching people act, which was kind of cool.
2: The camera work in that pilot shooting scene was so strange because – what we're seeing, the way every shot is framed, the camera moves, is absolutely unambiguously not how that pilot was shot or that kind of show would have been shot at the mm-hmm. time. So it feels like it's, it doesn't feel like we're watching the in-world camera, but every time it's like cut back to one, that is the camera that resets back to where it like. The camera is treated like it is the camera that's shooting that pilot, but it doesn't look anything like what that would actually look like.
0: It's like a, like diegetic is the word that you get for for music when music in world kind of translates to Mm -hmm. like the the overall music for a, a setting, like a soundtrack, like a song on the radio becomes the score for a scene this is exactly that but for like camera work yeah where it's just like it's in world but it also transcends the yeah the world of the movie which is weird and
2: that happens and i think it's the very first scene as well that's it it opens with that like news style interview like late night we're on set with cliff booth and rick Dalton and talking to him and the camera is positioned right behind the interviewer it's the interviewer facing directly cliff and rick they're sitting next to each other and one camera angle is directly behind the Mm -hmm. interviewer shooting the two actors and the other camera angle is directly behind the two actors shooting the interviewer you should see both of those cameras in the opposing shot (laughs) and he draws attention to it he has the interview like interviewer crank around and turn around in his chair to talk to that camera like it's it's very he's pointing at it yeah but there's obviously there's not a camera visible in either of those shots. It's just very very strange like the role of the camera in this movie is very uh, ethereal or just strange. It feels otherworldly. Yeah.
0: In a way that most movies don't. Yeah. And it's the first time I've ever noticed an audience laugh because the filmmaking was incorrect. <laughs> but it was also not that it was incorrect, like it was very deliberately done. Mm-hmm. But it's the first time an audience at least to me has ever recognized that wait a second something about this i don't understand just doesn't quite sit well with me which is cool
1: Mm -hmm. i mean like how often does it even happen like i mean it's so overt that it's like oh
0: (laughs) i mean it's amateur to some extent like that's a thing that a rookie filmmaker would do and be like oops i didn't think about that but like this is clearly not an amateur filmmaker this is someone making a statement like to some extent so yeah it's it's really neat
1: (laughs) can i talk about something equally as important in my view yeah um (laughs)
0: <laughs>
2: can't <the> wait <laughs> whoa, wait, whoa. wait. yes um
1: el coyote or casa vega
2: i've never been to casa vega I've never... but i love el coyote i've never been to
0: either i didn't know they were right next to where i live
2: oh fun fact when sharon tate is walking into el coyote they look down the street and it's like oh there's there's a i forget what she calls them dirty movie premiere yeah. at the theater up the street that theater, geographically, would be the New Beverly, which Quentin Tarantino owns. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> That's very funny.
1: Yeah, they, and you don't see a uh, milk or the Blick Art Store across the
0: street. No, side, not, uh, not, not yet. Thing. Apparently, there's an In-N-Out that was left in shot, though.
1: There's, it's you don't see the In-N-Out sign, but you can very distinctly see the In-N-Out building when they are in Westwood. <laughs> which uh, fun bit of trivia? Uh, I I walked onto the set of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because I would just happen to be in Westwood, and I was confused why all the buildings were named differently all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> like, the Starbucks was, like, a just different, and everything was different. Everything was, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on, and why are there, like, 60s cars on the streets? Yeah. So I walk over, and then, you know, one of the PAs is like, oh, hey, we're filming right now. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> you didn't ask?
1: What? You didn't ask what they're filming? Nope. I I, <laughs> I went to go get... Um, luckily, the place that I was trying to go to wasn't in, you know... It wasn't close down. It was just right on the edge. So I got my, uh, my, my uh, blueberry matcha milk tea with boba. And then I walked right around the corner and then left. And then when I... And then I never thought about that <laughs> moment in time again until Sharon Tate shows up in Westwood to go to the, to the <laughs> Bruin Theater. And I'm like... Holy fucking shit! I was on set. <laughs> you were within proximity of Margot Robbie's feet. Yes, she could have been in the theater showing her dirty feet to the. Couch. <laughs> At the moment, I was getting boba. <clears throat> so what? We have to go to Casa Vega. So sure, where? Um, our. This is this is irrelevant to the podcast. <laughs> Our new apartment is basically on Ventura, mm-hmm. Casa Vega's on Ventura. Okay. We can go there because it's less than 2 miles away. Great. And they have a thing, they have a Tarantino margarita deal.
0: Uh, <laughs> wait, are we going to get killed though if we get that margarita? No, 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 because we're going to Casa Vega on El Coyote. Oh, uh, okay. That's where Casa Vega is where Cliff and Rick go. Right?
2: Oh. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Because they
0: go to two different Mexican restaurants.
2: Gotcha. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. And They got blitzed on margaritas and telling stories because Rick Dalton, after he realizes there's no space for him in America, in Hollywood, he goes to Italy overseas to make the the, the things that he describes as the lesser uh, Italian spaghetti westerns. He makes mm-hmm. Italian films. <laughs> that have no artistic merit according to Rick Dalton, and it's just an easy paycheck for him and Cliff, which is funny because Tarantino unabashedly loves spaghetti westerns, especially Italian spaghetti westerns. Like, that's just his thing.
1: Is that why they're called
0: spaghetti? I, I don't really understand oh, the naming fuck. convention of it. I think that's it. Just I think, that think it's just that it's Italian. Oh, it's not Italian, got it.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, wow, that's so racist. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> But yeah. We all learned things today. So it's just one of those things where Tarantino is like – it's almost like he's not in reverence of it in the world of the movie, which I appreciate. He's like, no, people genuinely view these movies as lesser, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool because you think that if someone's biased towards a particular type of thing, they paint it in a little bit of a more positive light. So it's nice. But then uh, he spends – he does his, his stint in Italy – and uh, he comes back with Cliff and his new Italian wife, Francesca, and they move into a new home in the uh, the Hollywood Hills. And he brings a little bit of money with them, and it's ostensibly the last night that him and Cliff are going to be together before they part their ways. And that's when all of the Charles Manson stuff unfolds. Yeah, right at the end, like really in the last, what, 15 minutes?
2: Yeah. That's yeah, when the- it all
0: happens. Before I watch this movie... I was just like, I don't think Tarantino's gonna kill Sharon Tate. <laughs> I feel like it would be mean if he killed Sharon Tate in the yeah. movie. Especially n- not only just mean because of the, the circumstances surrounding it, but like Tarantino his like has a history of like retelling history. Like that's his thing. Like he enjoys like Inglorious Bastards. They kill Hitler in his movie (laughs) and like that's not a thing that actually happened in real life. So I was like, okay, if you can like do an alternate history for killing Hitler, surely you can do something about this horrible, gruesome murder because really Sharon Tate in this movie has just been nothing but the the most wholesome. So it would be terrible to just see her killed. It would feel gross if she got killed in this movie. Yeah. And that doesn't happen. Mm hmm. How did you feel about how all of the circumstances that unfolded? Because it was such a fun trail getting there because Cliff gets the weird acid dipped cigarette a long time ago and he comes back and smokes it and goes for a walk. All that stuff. How, how do you feel about that entire end? Cole?
2: I generally just, from a, a moment to moment basis, remove all context i don't like watching the kind of violence that was on screen um
1: it was hard to watch
2: it's a lot um but
1: Am I a bad person because I thought it was hilarious, like just unabashedly funny?
2: I I was really unnerved by how much the audience was laughing when we saw it. It's I found brutal. that I found that really like more upsetting than anything in the the movie was just how how immediately people welcomed enjoying that brutality. <laughs> um, that being said, I feel like this is a movie that is is all about building up to a night of intense violence, and you need that release that needed to come somewhere if you're not going to kill Sharon Tate someone else has to die like that that has to happen and i don't i don't like feel bad for those people like once i'm one step removed from the act of watching that kind of violence i don't feel pity or or like that that was a bad thing for anyone to have done like that that's deserved and that's satisfying to an extent um and i feel like i was i was ready for something bad and violent and stressed out by that experience so then once it happened i was fully distracted by dealing with that happening yeah. so when it, it finally all calmed down and it got to the part for me it was when you hear sharon tate's voice come over the intercom just asking if everyone's okay and being shocked that something horrible happened next door i found that like really touching and really moving and that that scene really worked for me and all that violence kind of let you be distracted from the fact that Sharon Tate is not going to get killed until everything kind of is resolved. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: It was genuinely pleasant to yeah. hear her say, "Is everything okay?" Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, God, <laughs> jeez." <laughs>
1: Here it is, Sharon. Here it is. Yeah, it makes it. It makes it sad to think about real world scenarios after you know listening to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that. Um, getting murdered by way of dog food can to the face <laughs> will it- never not be uh, the funniest thing I see this year.
2: Yeesh. I that,
1: that <sighs> it, it tickles me in a way <laughs> that I might feel worse about now after Coral talking about it. But yeah. like, oh that is, is is it just a comedy styling that I like? Like I, I don't know I don't know what has trained me or brought me to the point in my life where I think that is fucking hilarious. But I thought that was just 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 funny. In a way that I don't laugh at a lot of stuff. I don't laugh at a lot of comedy.
0: I mean, I think it's the, it's the it's tapping the same button that the the sudden headshot in Pulp Fiction tap, where it's just unexpected abrupt. Like you did expect this violence, but you didn't expect this level of violence because it just really ramps up. It just kicks into high gear immediately with just brutal, well shot violence something that made you feel every impact i think that a lot of the textures that you were presented with in that scene really put you at a one for one with the kind of pain that could potentially like what that could potentially feel like it's all those rocky surfaces the corners the edges the blunt instrumentality of a phone uh and and just the the receiver of the phone like Tell me how a flamethrower feels, Nick. There, there's a lot there, and I, honestly, the the flamethrower is like, oh, this is supposed to be funny. Okay, yeah, <laughs> and, and that and that really is. I think that 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 part is just pure brutality, punctuated by a funny cartoon death at the very end with Rick Dalton pulling out his old flamethrower that, of course, Rick Dalton kept from a previous movie that he'd barely learned knows how to use. Like, sure, that's how you end it. Yeah, man. It was a lot. (laughs) I have a hard time. Like, I I have a hard time. Like, I can watch any horror movie, but the second you cut off a leg and don't show and don't, like, cut away from it and you see all of the violence, like, I'm like, oh, I can't watch that. That's too hard for me. So this was very much like it felt. On the level of like a torture porn to some extent, mm-hmm. where it just it, genuine question, yeah. uh, slightly offbeat. Can you watch
1: uh surgery shows?
0: Yeah, that stuff's fine
1: okay. because there's nothing mean
0: about him Like
1: yeah. when it's something so that it's like the intent, not the not the human gore.
0: Yeah, it's something that's it's like it's heinous almost. Like I'm watching something that is terrible that I should not be witness to because I think that. Like that's the kind of thing that I'm I a big proponent of, that I'm a big preacher for, is you have to be careful about the stuff that you consume, whether it be food or media. Because whether you like it or not, you are consuming and your body is processing the media.
1: I want to tell you what Nick Edward did there last night, Cole. Mm.
0: That's entering your body through some extent. And sure, you can be like, yeah, I is conscious. I ate a burger, so I'm going to have to work out tomorrow or whatever. Or like it's not that big of a deal. Like I can – my body can handle this. But for some people, like maybe their body can't handle it. And yeah. so it's it's that kind of – like this stuff especially I think is the stuff that can trigger uh, a real uh, potentially negative reaction from certain people.
2: Yeah, and I mean there's there's a lot of people that would have an understandably negative response to just watching a buff older guy beat the shit out of teenage girls. Yeah. Like that is just – when you peel back any layer of context – That's a a relevant violence to a lot of people's lives that is going to be really hard to watch in a theater full of people laughing and having a great time.
0: It it made me reevaluate my sense of like capital punishment Mm -hmm. because like I I definitely did find myself laughing at something that I found heinous, but I also felt bad for laughing at it. Mm -hmm. And so it was just me trying to come to terms with like. Brad Pitt's beating up a young woman with a phone and just a, a can of dog food, but she also murdered Sharon Tate. Yeah. Like, it's like she's getting punished for a reality that didn't take place in the world of the movie, but it mm-hmm. took place in mine.
2: Especially Dalton's flamethrower thing because he, he doesn't know what's been going on in <laughs> yeah. the living room. A young girl stumbles yeah. in his backyard <laughs> bleeding and <laughs> <screaming>. <laughs> asking for help, and he flamethrowers her. <laughs>
0: So he, he it, it's something that's so in line with his character that he's just like, well, clearly the this is the, <laughs> the appropriate response. But yeah, I just found myself coming in terms of like he's beating up a, a, a young woman, but she also murdered Sharon Tate. So I'm just yeah. like, oh, she deserves this. But I also just felt weird, and it, it's not Tarantino's fault. Like I think that he was fine to showcase that scene the way he did. I don't think that it is up to the director to decide what might or might not trigger a person in an audience. Like if the color red is going to turn someone into a mass murderer, are you as a film? It'll turn one in one billion people into a mass murderer. Are you as a filmmaker inclined to be like, I can never use the color red? I don't know. That's a weird philosophical <laughs> thing that you need to figure out for yourself. Yeah. I but,
1: play Fortnite, so I might go to a school shooting. But
0: it's just one of those things like – It's probably not your fault If something comes as a result of this People might blame you But people always lay blame To incorrect things So it's I I think it was fine It's just It's excessive in a way that I know that I'm immediately put off by But I won't fault something for it So it's like I know I can't handle this Yeah Did you like the ending Joey?
1: I the can of dog food is the funniest thing I've seen in a very long time Nick.
2: <laughs> that, that I
0: mean. was a pretty good dog too
2: yeah Rick, I love that dog Brandy
0: Brandy was a very good he was a good, good boy good boy good boy good girl good doggo good,
1: good doggo good, good dog. good I wish them my dogs were that well trained
2: I love the scene of uh, Cliff making dinner for himself and Brandy I just I just thought that was really a pleasant five minutes to watch someone go about their night with their dog
0: and it just felt totally in line with Cliff Booth. Mm-hmm. And it's just he makes his own dinner with the same reverence
2: that—no, with
0: less reverence—that <laughs> he makes Brandy his dog's dinner, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Like he genuinely loves that dog. Like that's the thing that would have worried me is like the dog died. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have liked that very much. Uh, one thing that did catch me off guard, though. Roman Polanski and Charles Charles Manson's inclusions in this movie. Mm-hmm. It felt like that was kind of like a big deal when it was announced that they would be in the movie. Yeah, it created headlines. But they played such tiny roles. Charles Manson's on the screen for what, 25 seconds? Yeah. And Roman Polanski, understandably a, a little bit larger, but he's basically non-existent. He just looks like Austin Powers. <laughs> uh, so that was weird. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah i I kind of took it to be like a, this is distracting and not the point. Mm. Anytime Charles Manson is on screen interacting with these characters, it's going to be about oh this is Charles Manson and this is a portrayal of Charles Manson. What is it like? I felt like it was just a, we're just not going to deal with that because I have other things to deal with. Was how I read yeah. that. It felt like he was satisfying
0: an obligation.
2: Yeah, <laughs> he has to show up. In some way. So he might as well just be asking about the neighbors and where they live and then just wander back off and that's it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, they, they would be overpowering because then people would just be talking about, like, you know, how is Charles Manson or, like, how gross is it to have Roman Polanski here and stuff. Yeah. The things that Tarantino wanted people to be talking about or thinking about.
0: Yeah. and It's weird. Like, I unrelated to this movie, but I just watched all through all of uh, season two of Mindhunter. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the big things that they were touting this season, like building up to this season, was they're going to interview Charles Manson. And it it also felt very much uh, like a similar beat in that they felt obligated to talk about Charles Manson. But they kind of like – even within the world of Mindhunter, they're like – yeah the dude's crazy like, yeah
2: that wasn't useful yeah,
0: that, 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 we literally learned nothing <laughs> from that whatever like I, i'm glad that they didn't glorify it in a way that just felt distracting it was just like well we have to talk about him but yeah i mean there's not much you can learn from from someone like yeah. him
2: that was the same actor
0: it is mm-hmm. that's what i had heard but i tried when i watched it i was like this doesn't look like the same guy but he had yeah. way more facial hair <laughs>
1: Some people get typecast into roles, and that guy's just from Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's a big oof.
2: Yeah. C-
0: coming off the heels of Buster Keaton, Charles Manson, or at least I guess he was also a very short man. Yeah. Which I did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about Roman Polanski, though? How are you not going to kill Roman Polanski <laughs> yeah. in this movie? Uh, that's I- a I- weird I- meta statement because that person is still alive. Oh, he just won his uh, – another international film festival for a, a movie he did uh, last weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Who's giving them
2: but the But Me work? Too ruins lives. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, man. No, Charles Manson – or Charles Manson. He might as well be. Roman Polanski lives in France? He lives in France and that's where he's free from – like he's not going to get extradited. He's probably going to die in France and he'll never pay for his crimes. But that's just the world we live in. I just thought – that I was like, if there's any director in Hollywood who'd be <laughs> gutsy enough to do something crazy, it'd be Tarantino. And I'd be yeah. like, when I saw him, I was like, Tarantino's going to kill Polanski <laughs> in this movie, <laughs> which I'm like, I'm very into, but mm-hmm. he didn't. Is there
1: any precedent for having a movie that is loosely based on real world scenarios and you kill people who didn't die in real world are still alive? Like, that is so
0: touching even for like yeah no i know yeah. but like who's gonna say anything about it it's like will you kill polanski and it's fine what if you did like
2: <laughs> well, woody <laughs> allen just stumbles <laughs> in
1: <laughs> well, like what's the movie with like you know all of the uh when they, they had all the act these were the expendable so they had all the action heroes come back for like what yeah, yeah yeah what if you did that but just with, like, a bunch of people who are, like, objectively bad people like Lance <laughs> and Bill Cosby and then the joke is that they're just all getting killed? Would that – You I
2: mean, got to wait for uh, – what's the face
0: that's replacing exactly. thing? Oh deep. oh, deep fakes. Yeah,
2: you got to wait and do it with deep fakes.
0: Yeah. I mean that's what there, – there it is. That's how you do it. But, yeah, I mean – that that does raise a whole philosophical issue. Like I had zero problem watching the inglorious bastard shoot Hitler's face in, but part of it is also because like ah eh, Hitler's long dead and he died, like during the war. Like I I don't know, I don't know if I would have got the feeling I was hoping for had he hitlered Roman Pol- <laughs> Roman Polanski, you know. I think it would have been like a weird, I feel bad because it's another human being, even though they are just a truly heinous human being. Yeah, it's yeah. very complicated. Yeah. But
1: then also, I mean, you can't do that because then the whole film just becomes about that and not about anything else. Yeah. So I get I get why you wouldn't do that for a couple different reasons, but it could be potentially cathartic.
0: But overall, Julian, where, where do you put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the canon of Quentin Tarantino? It's a... And the canon of Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, before we get to the Joey hates movies canon, um, towards the bottom, I think you like middle, this cons- mid- middle bottom. You like this considerably less. What would you put immediately above it? Immediately
1: above it. Yeah. Oh, this is. I should. I should <laughs> <is a> chart. <laughs> Sorry, I just sprung
0: this on you. Yeah. Um. Um. Hateful
1: Eight.
0: Okay. You like Hateful Late more than this movie. I do, and I, I realize it's a wildly unpopular opinion because a lot of people really don't like that movie from Tarantino at all. That movie just, to me at least, I understand people who do like it, but to me that movie is just an entire movie predicated on the surprises. And so once you watch it once, I feel like it loses a lot of its magic because you know what's happening next.
1: Yeah, you just got to forget everything. Yeah. Watch it again really high, Nick. <laughs> uh,
0: uh-huh. But Coral, you said you really liked this movie. Yeah. Uh, more than, like, Pulp Fiction.
2: Yeah, this is definitely my favorite Tarantino movie.
0: Oh, very cool. Yeah. I I think I put this right behind something like Pulp Fiction for me. I I think that movie's pretty cool. Towards the top. Huh? Towards the top, then? Yeah, I'd say probably number two or number three. I think the only other thing that might be in contention is, like, just the entirety of Kill Bill. Yeah, that that is my
1: favorite, full disclosure. The the Whole Bloody Affair is my favorite.
0: But, But I could see, like, a world for me where it's Pulp Fiction, this... And then Kill Bill. But this is definitely the movie that I'll probably revisit the most out of all of Tarantino stuff. It feels the meatiest. It'll just be the one that I'll yeah. just throw on while I'm doing chores. And I'm just like, oh, this is cool. I noticed something I didn't th- the previous time I watched this movie. Which now is, I'm just curious if either
1: you would actually enjoy watching Jackie Brown or not.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm going to watch Jackie Brown very soon. So. The,
2: the film filmy peoples whose opinions I usually most align with or most respect put it high up. So I think I'll like it.
0: Yeah,
1: I, I, it's interesting I, because I think most like pop culture lists put it towards the bottom. So
2: yeah,
0: there's but I mean there's obviously a disconnect there. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I think that this is a bad story, but a, a just a pinnacle of like movies.
1: I like shit about Los Angeles.
0: Yeah. Um, and
1: we live there, which is we we're buying. It's very self indulgent. <laughs> I also do think the movie's better than Jurassic Park.
0: Okay, <laughs> but is it better than? Uh, what's at the top? Collateral.
1: <laughs> the more that you say that, the more that I might regret something.
0: I like Collateral. It's,
1: it's it's not my favorite movie we've seen on the podcast. It's definitely above Jurassic Park. Is it- as, as we watch more and more movies, I'm going to have to let write me- it down. make a chart. Just like, <laughs> just like a living blog post or something that can be referenced. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it'll, it'll, it's going to get unruly to recap over and over again. Yeah,
0: we got to do it earlier rather than later. Otherwise, it'll get tough.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or I just listen to the episode. I don't see what I say again. Uh, it's I, I'd put it uh, towards the top of the pack of the movies that we've seen for this podcast. Um, I like it more than Jurassic Park. I like it more than The Matrix. Um, it's probably like with the Thing,
0: ish. Okay. Like like I'd, I'd probably put it in like that top three. That's good territory. <laughs> That's pretty good territory. Uh, but our next movie is not one that Coral has decided. <laughs> Nor is it actually no. Coral did choose it. <laughs> it is also not a movie that I have chosen. Nor is Joey. It is the fine folks over on Patreon.com forward slash CyberGarbage. If you want to be a part of our next vote, because this vote might be a little controversial, uh, you can consider backing us over there. Uh, Just the dollar. At at the dollar tier, you can vote in on all of these polls, and you'll also get access to video versions of this podcast uh, and also our video game book club, which is very similar to this. It's called Garbage Game Club, but instead of talking about movies, we talk about video games, deep dive, all that stuff. If you like video games and you like this podcast, you'll probably like that one. Uh, Considerably less choral, though. But outside of that, the people on Patreon voted, and what choices? What were the choices in this vote, Joey? The choices that were were popular were um, Crank. Oh, the Jason Statham action movie. That's his favorite movie he's made, you know. Akira. Okay, A, an anime classic. And
1: uh, Airplane.
0: Okay. What a wild collection of movies. Yeah,
1: all suggestions from people on Patreon. So if you do have suggestions, we do listen. Um, that's where where the options came from. But uh, in the past where things have been kind of split up and the vote hasn't like really been finite, this one was an overwhelming win.
0: For oh, airplane. wow. Airplane. Airplane. I've never seen Airplane. I'm... Scared, why? It's a comedy. You love comedies. I do, I though. I don't
1: think I do. I'm also like, is it of a time? Is there gonna be like, like jokes about how like women are dumb and stuff? Because that's, that's, that's what I think about
0: when I think about airplane in my head. That's what I immediately think of too.
2: Yeah, I feel like I'm gonna find this more dated than the general.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like the, I'm gonna hear a slur in this. <laughs> which is fine like this i mean it's not fine but it's fine in that like this is an old piece of media like it's definitely a snapshot of a time period uh whether you like it or not (laughs) but i am curious to see if it's because we have zero nostalgia for this movie i'm very curious to see how it holds up also one of the rare movies none of us have seen so yeah Yeah. and this is a a perfect example of no rose-tinted glasses so we will see you next time for another episode of Joey Hates Movies, Airplane. I think it's on Netflix. So,
1: Dude, follow it. us on, on the podcast network, Spotify and Apple and all that stuff. And leave, really, us, leave us it a five-star really, really, review. It, really helps. it
0: genuinely f- helps with and, the
1: search algorithms, please.
0: And please. also, you probably hang please. out with people who are similar to you. Uh, science shows that your friends probably have similar tastes to you. So consider telling them about this podcast. Or force them to listen in the car. They're probably That's a good. Yeah, trap them and just force them to listen. They're probably cool like you, and they'll be even cooler if they listen to this. So see you next time.